Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. No intro today. Let's cut to the chase. I typically see my job on this podcast as providing tools to help lower complexity while improving, or at the very least, keeping constant accuracy. That's tools to help you understand and make sense of media and politics. As such, I like to keep my audience broad. I don't like to follow too much inter-movement drama. I don't like to specifically comment on one branch of politics at any given point in time. By you listening to this, you can probably tell that's exactly what I'm going to do today. And it isn't for naught. There's a very good reason that there's a branch of the so-called classically liberal, free speech, absolutist, centrist, etc. movement that I've had a holster I've wanted to unload onto them, metaphorically of course, for quite a while. And no one has presented a better target than Jonathan Rauch in his book The Constitution of Knowledge. He does an excellent job in describing the status quo maybe around 20 or even 10 to some degree years ago, and why that system was so valuable in that time. Of course, that's not the only thing he does in this book, and he tries to make an appeal to preserve the system in the future, reforming institutions and placing more trust in collective centralized entities, such as the US government, such as Facebook, or such as institutionalized media. He makes a series of claims that I want to eviscerate one by one on this episode, because it is exactly this way of thinking, this way of thinking that seeks to preserve linear stories that does not recognize the danger of highly connected exponentials, that has led us into this situation in the first place. This also doubles as a Q&A episode. It touches on many questions that I've been asked both privately and publicly in the past, and I'm glad that I finally get a chance to answer all of them in one fell swoop. Finally, no disrespect personally to Rauch or any other people who may hold this type of ideology. This branch of the classically liberal or centrist movement the one that prefers institutional reform and often is much more aligned with absolutist values, such as on free speech, are not fundamentally malignant on their own. Heck, if the world was ruled by them, it would be a much better situation than the one we're in right now. However, because they managed to tell a good story to those who are seeking a way out, many of which are in this community, they can also act to lead exactly those people, exactly those people who we are depending on to work together to solve a collective action problem and to make a new solution into the same old flaws that will keep the cycle repeating. Because the world is fundamentally different. We've crossed over what I call the second Dunbar number the hard limit on connectivity that enables the use of abstracts and storytelling 
in order to preserve some type of truth. That world is over. I'm sorry, Jonathan, but your institutions are dead and will only create worse problems in all of the forms that you wish to preserve. The thesis of Jonathan Rausch's book, Constitution of Knowledge, is that there are formal procedures and guidelines, not necessarily written down but ones that are socially abided by, that keep the process of truth-finding in place. This is in fact true from some period more or less after the Enlightenment, and all the way up to maybe 2010 at most. So we have a classic murder mystery. What went wrong? Many of you who listen to this podcast, and in fact listen to the intro, already know a strong part of my case. But that's not the focus yet. The focus is on Rauch, and he makes this case that there are concerted campaigns by both Donald Trump in the field of disinformation and what he and many others call the firehose of falsehood to spread widespread disinformation by flooding media with false claims. This is in fact a statement that I widely agree with. What makes it wrong is that Rauch later uses this as the main reason that we are in the media state we are now. I think that that's false. He also takes aim at quote-unquote cancel culture, at what others call the spiral of silence, the preference falsification that happens when people a make judgments on truth based on societal popularity, and two, where there are active campaigns in order to manipulate that societal popularity by censoring or otherwise targeting either with violence or simply with social attacks, smears, etc. in the more common quote-unquote cancel culture form. This, once again, is indeed a problem, but what I'm going to argue in this episode is that it is just another symptom. Let's take the institutions first. We all already have a mountain of evidence against the ability of our institutions to do even the most simple of tasks. This includes the existence of institutionalized conspiracy theories, as well as the denial of hypotheses that have clear evidence from the very beginning, such as the lab leak hypothesis. One of the classically liberal points is that Trump's understanding of the media and flooding of falsehood was responsible for much of the media malfeasance, including using the example that because of Trump's poor record, the media had an impulse to disbelieve the lab leak hypothesis, despite the evidence, or possibly not looking at it at all. This, he claims, is something that exists due to the disparaging and the destruction of the media ecosystem caused by Trump. However, ask yourself a simple question. Would the same due diligence that we are expecting in a scenario where media is functioning properly be applied if, say, Hillary Clinton were in office? Would there be a stronger checking of the facts, an evaluation of the data at hand, including anything from geographic data to the virus's specific patterns to 
the clear falsehoods in the zoonotic origins explanations. Would the media be any better at evaluating that data on the merits? I believe the answer is no, and a widespread record of falsifying anywhere from weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to various stories under the Obama administration, or even during various primaries, things that had little to do with Trump at least in early stages, such as targeting or silencing Bernie Sanders or Ron Paul. Statistical analyses of both airtime and of emotional valence in describing these candidates show this phenomenon in action. In other words, what is happening is that these media organizations are making decisions widely based on societal popularity or on political connections, and that this happens regardless of whether Trump is in office or not. The control group exists right there in front of you. The only difference is that unlike the scenario with Trump in which the prestige in the eyes of those making these decisions of the White House was greatly diminished, in which they would blatantly reject, regardless of the merits, any hypothesis, instead they would accept a hypothesis without that same due diligence, as we saw with the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. This means that a simple on or off switch is flicked, instead of always taking the story that is diametrically opposed to whatever Trump claims, they simply adopt the government position, once again without evaluating the merits on the facts. Another question involving the lab leak hypothesis raised by both Rauch and people who I interact with is whether the lab leak hypothesis eventually reaching the air is a sign of positivity for the media instead of negativity. I want to debunk this as quickly as possible here as well. Rausch actually makes a fairly decent point, which is that liberal systems can evaluate information and rediscover its past mistakes. This is a good thing. However, he focuses on one aspect that makes certain problems with the fallout of the lab leak hypothesis being swept under the rug. That is, he specifically points to the idea that people should not be punished based on their clear falsification or, at the very least, ignorance of scientific information. He claims that ideas with the support of the evidence eventually gain a foothold and that those who were initially falsifying simply quote-unquote lose the argument. The response to this is once again simple. Will the next type of story take longer or shorter to evaluate? The answer, save randomness, is almost certainly longer, because those dissidents, particularly the ones who spoke up in early stages, were often personally attacked, had their careers damaged, removed from social media, and otherwise had attacks on their distribution 
graph, the ability for them to reach certain audiences. The ability for them to reach an audience and to leverage influence on the institutions that are supposed to come up with these truth claims. What this means is that in the next round of the game, institutions are even less likely to listen to this category of people who got things right, despite them possibly having a greater following among ordinary people. The main disagreement is this. There must be consequences for factual errors, particularly for those who are institutionalized. Otherwise, their distribution graph continues to grow at the same time in which the distribution graph of those who got things right continue to shrink. Maybe the exact dominance that is necessary in order to keep a truth claim from reaching the top was not met this time. However, if the reach of those who have a track record of falsification and of groupthink are increasing in distribution, and those who have a track record of getting it right are decreasing, and it's fairly easy to show that these tend to be exponential effects when it comes to social or mass media, then it does not take that many rounds for this truth function to break altogether. And that is to assume that this has not happened yet, that there are no false claims currently embedded in media institutions that will last forever, or at least last for a long period of time that will create significant consequences. You could argue that the differences in medical approach caused by the immediate dismissal, the baseless dismissal of the lab leak hypothesis, may have already cost thousands of lives. And we are in a system that is not anti-fragile, that is not repairing itself and growing stronger due to these mistakes but is instead further entrenching the exact people who are making the mistakes in the first place. Moving forward, let's talk about cancel culture and spiral of silence. And let's throw in preference falsification for this trio of terms that describe variations on a theme. As we've already talked about, social preference often plays a high role in the decision making of these various institutions, even when idealistically they are immune to social preferences. This occurs on both the institution-wide and individual level, as not only are there consequences reputationally for an institution for disagreeing with groupthink or against other targeted campaigns against them, but also for individuals who are much more exposed to risk, who are much more likely to have personal ramifications against them, often by the very same institutions, for taking certain political or even factual evidence-backed positions. We saw this exactly with lab leak hypothesis, we saw this frequently in political-related coverage, and in identity-related issues. I've made a substantial case on this program on many episodes that 
This is fundamentally due to insularization, an effect that happens in a closed organization in which the external forces are constant and the internal forces are increasing. This includes any company, university, or political party in which often the pressure to win outside elections, the pressure to sell a product, the pressure to educate students in a way in which they will succeed in the world, are all actually fairly low, particularly at the individual level. Particularly in the institutions of education and media, it is increasingly rare to see firings due to incompetence, due to sheer factual error, and ones who have a long-held track record of exactly those errors, of exactly performing incredibly poor journalism, or incredibly poor teaching, or even institutionalizing conspiracy theories that make baseless claims about the world, maintain their positions and are able to exert political influence from their positions in each of these institutions. At the same exact time, the internal pressure, or the political pressure, is increasing. To be fair, Rausch and other classical liberals do point to this issue. Or at the very least, they point to the symptoms of this issue. The aforementioned cancel culture or deplatforming. Often, the solution is just to establish stronger codes in order to preserve the institutions themselves, making free speech more universal, particularly in insulating people from being politically attacked for their speech, including attacks on their employment or career, and creating a stronger rule set to bound these judgments and bound the actions of institutions to a pursuit of truth. As I've said several times already, this is a good solution for the 2000s, maybe. But it is certainly not one now. That is because they're mistaking the symptom for the root problem. Instead, insularization is a phenomenon when you have both hyperconnectedness and increasing partisanship, with things like geographical sorting and with degree sorting, extreme polarizations towards one party or the other based on whether you hold those specific factors that then fuel the makeup of institutions such as education, obviously, and media, as well as to a smaller extent government and science, which since it is increasing, since these malicious political actors are able to grab more and more power with no consequence, while consequences for disregarding the truth are minimal, means that whatever measures you put into place that do not stop the insularization from happening will eventually be less influential than the political power that develops on the inside. At this point, proponents of the classically liberal ideology or free speech absolutist ideologies would probably say, well, Cactus, why don't we just address those problems? and probably list off some of the band-aid solutions that I've mentioned on previous episodes of the podcast before. Disincentivizing social media, preventing insularization through ideological diversity, reinforcing more strongly 
the principles of accuracy and the higher standards of evidence that are necessary. All of these things I have no problem with, in fact that's why I've listed them on previous episodes. But all of them share a common factor. They are constant fixes for linear or exponential problems, the latter class of which are particularly dangerous. And this ultimately is the root of the case. For almost all of history, including the time in which the liberal order reigned, the world has been expo- the world has been linear-ish or polynomial-ish. It has never been exponential. It has never had the ability to compound S curves to build up power at the unique rates that we see, whether it is through social media campaigns, which are exponential through the social network, whether it is through Moore's Law or other or other descriptions of the hyper-novel technologies being developed, or whether it is a global pandemic. This is a unique class of problems that I've done an entire episode on. Ones that centralized institutions, which are hard limited to being linear at best, are never going to be able to solve. What I am saying is as simple as this. You are given a self-sorting mechanism, which is impossible to prevent, without the heavy restrictions of civil liberties in a China-like way, or maybe even more authoritarian than that. This includes the ability to pursue a career, a degree, an equivalent signifier, and to move from place to place. It includes what company to work at, what social media networks to form, and what partisan political signals to give off to attract others of the same kind. What's worse, this happens at an exponential scale due to hyperconnectedness of media and social media, meaning that in a very limited amount of steps, certainly in our lifetimes, even if we are able to wave a magic wand to institute the reforms that Rausch proposed, heck, to institute the reforms that, in my opinion, are more effective, the band-aid fixes that I proposed in episodes similar to this one. There would be a small, fixed number of steps, probably within a decade, of this process repeating, such that the increased polarization of both people and of power within institutions would grow to a ratio that overpowers whatever new guardrails have been put into place. Not only that, but any centralized institution that wields legitimacy and power will be the first to be influenced by these effects, as they are the highest prize targets. There is the most political benefit for influencing the most important institutions and therefore the greatest incentive for it to be something that occurs. I'll give one last steel man to Rausch and Co. He specifically talks about fixing the problems 
of Trumpian or Russian-style disinformation, and of cancel culture or spiral of silence type disinformation. His problems may be due those, at least in the names that they exist right now. They take one step forward in the game, and that is undoubtedly a good thing. I'm not just worried about cancel culture, or about Trumpism, about Russian disinformation, or about whatever conspiracies exist right now. They are the current steps of the game, and they're only going to get harder and harder. This is predicted by Dawkins' style memetics, and by the tendency of evolutionary systems, such as the selection of these pathologens, that end up distorting media space. I've done a full episode on this as well. This classical liberal ideology just expects to play another move. We reinforce the institutions, and then maybe they get taken over again, and we do the whole thing again. And maybe things will be better after that, and people will have learned their damn lesson. But this iterative approach is exactly what loses to evolutionary systems that have a much higher rate of change than any of our conscious development abilities. As I've already talked about, these evolutionary systems are exponential or hyper-exponential due to them scaling through social networks. So what exactly are the solutions here? I've already alluded to many of them, they are few and far between, and each of them I've already described in the episodes I've talked about. There's disconnection, trust acceleration, and decentralization, all of which probably need to apply at some level. All of these affect the growth rate of pathologens and of institutional capture, and some cocktail of which can hopefully reduce it to below 1, which means that they will no longer have exponential growth to be worried about. Let's run through each of them, although you could just listen to those episodes again. Disconnection is simply fragmenting the hyper-connected networks into parts that cannot communicate with each other, have little or no political or economic interest in doing so. This can include breaking up the United States into five or six different countries. This is because one contributing factor to surpassing what I call the second Dunbar number is simply the population of a network. This is because an increased population size will allow for polarization and for network effects to occur faster, and therefore the many social network scaling phenomenon, including pathologens and including insularization, to happen at a more frequent rate. This is very strong in addressing the development of pathologens in conspiracy theories, and marginally effective in changing the dominance of insularization. The incentives in institutional capture still exist, however, because these institutions are distributed across various new fragments, instead of simply on one, the overall outside pressure for capture will be diminished. However, this is mainly a solution 
that addresses network effects. The second is trust acceleration, and this one is mainly targeted at the institutional end. We've already talked about how the enforcement, particularly in Rausch's ideal liberal society, simply does not exist, particularly at the scale that is necessary and particularly in the institution of journalism to kick those out that are frequently and consistently falsifying information and or engaging in groupthink or malpractice while ignoring the evidence at hand while also elevating those who have been right and continue to be right. This can be accelerated through explicitly written rules. In fact, it is one of the few solutions that fit in a normal institutional framework, which is why I'm so disappointed in the lack of this being a top priority to anyone who is trying to restore the classically liberal system. The third is decentralization of both information, of both institutions, and communication itself. The former probably looks like what you typically think of when you think of decentralization. Smaller internet variants of what you might consider typical institutions, possibly mediated through new technologies just such as blockchain, or established through even more persistent protocols such as network states. And that is certainly a solution that I think will move the ball forward and will oppose capture by both the disconnection method that I already talked about before, but also in building institutions that are not as susceptible to this fragmentation due to their modular nature. What this means is that those enduring political attacks can more easily swap out their role. They can swap it out for some other pseudonymous identity, some other parallel job that is not facing the same political pressure, or some other job entirely while maintaining that immunity to political persecution. In other words, there is much shorter distance to fall from these pressured attacks. These technologies can also frequently help with trust acceleration, what I just talked about, because you can make protocols much clearer and much more objective by running them in an automated way. The second form of decentralization looks like what I'm doing here. Instead of building institutions out of centralized, one-to-many communicators, do it through many-to-many -many communicators such as listening to this podcast, listening to other podcasts, shows, or traditional media institutions, and mediating the information that you get from each of them. Typical media and typical institutions in general funnel a bunch of information into it, apply, apply some sort of filter to try to make sense of that information, and then funnel that out to all of the consumers often as their sole or one of very few information sources. This makes it easy to centralize and to try to control these institutions through insularization or through other forms of capture. By making a much more dispersed network of information, 
including myself, including other people who are not necessarily bound by the same financial incentives, and the number of points that need to be consolidated in order for either capture or disinformation to be successful is increasingly many. And that is possibly the most promising solution that we have on the table. You can contribute to that solution right now, incredibly easily, by just subscribing or sharing the podcast, or doing that with other news sources that you think are accurate. Build that decentralized network, and even become a signal for those who are connected to you. Make sure you're applying the best information filter you can, the best discernment, the best seeking of factual information through all the standards we've discussed before. If you want to review and get a deeper look into many of the concepts that I've mentioned in this episode, which really span the range of metapolitics topics, then look at the 14th numbered episode, The Exponential Function is Coming for You, the 16th number episode, Limbaugh's Legacy, Asymmetric Strategy, and Emotional Heuristic Failure, the 20th numbered episode, Anarchy, Liberty, Tyranny, and the Incentive Games Between Them, as well as the 21st numbered episode, Insular Activism. Each of these prepare some, or all, of the solutions and ideas presented today. And finally, don't be too hard on Jonathan Rauch. He's trying his best, and, quite frankly, his solutions aren't bad for the 90s. They would work quite well then, and probably have made the politics of that age much, much better. As always, the podcast is simply free. I'm not getting anything out of this, except, hopefully, one day, a better world. And if you do anything to help us out, that would be the thing that I appreciate most. So, as always, thank you.